Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Um, The Church right now is making a significant shift from the end of the liturgical year to the beginning of the new year. And so the gospel that uh, the church chooses is, is that we use today is the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent in the sea cycle of the, of the church's readings. It's the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 to 28 and 34 to 36. We've already looked at the intervening verses, actually, as we looked at some of the end-of-the-year Gospels, and uh, particularly in the Gospels of Mark, and, but also of John. This is a continuing of the apocalyptic nature of the Gospels. And, and I think that, um, that a lot of this, then, we should make a short reflection on the meaning of Advent, and uh, the distinction between Advent and Lent, which a lots of times I think gets gets mixed up and confused, because the Gospels reflect that distinction. And if we try to if we try to put them all together in terms of simply an anticipation of kind of a saving event, that uh, that we kind of miss the power of some of these Gospels. First of all, Advent is radically different than Lent. Advent is, um, is not the celebration of the anticipation of the finality of the age, um, that Advent is, in fact, the anticipation of the beginning of the drama, the unfolding of the age, of, of, of the coming of the Lord, the age of the, the apocalyptic, the insightful, the, uh, the time-structured experiences of the end. Um, the actual feast of the incarnation of the Lord for the first couple centuries in the church was on the 25th of March. And it was the Annunciation for all of those who, who claimed to be biblical Christians and who um, kind of deny that life begins at conception um, would have a hard struggle with early Christianity that sees the incarnation itself as taking place at the time of the Annunciation, at the time of the conception of the Lord in the womb of the Virgin. And it isn't until into the third and fourth century that it becomes shifted from the actual incarnation itself to the appearance of the incarnation in time and place and in history, which is the feast and the celebration of Christmas, which gradually developed um, in the East and then was taken over in the West. So that Advent then is not a time of the, uh, of the saving event, it's the time of the appearance of the saving event. Lent is anticipating the actual, the actual act of salvation, the actual act of redemption, the, uh, the passion, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord. So they're, they're radically different in, in what they are. Are they anticipatory periods of time? Yeah, they're anticipatory periods of time. But Advent appears in the middle, very near the end of the whole phenomenon of the Incarnation. And, and begins then to prepare for us to acknowledge it, for us to see it, for us to experience it in, historically in our world. Whereas Lent, obviously, is a radically different phenomenon than that. 
And so they carry over then from the apocalyptic readings of the end of the liturgical year into the, into the beginning of the, the new year, the anticipation of the appearance of the Christ who is then to lead us through the rest of the New Testament. And in leading us through the rest of the New Testament is to begin to reveal to us the, uh, the, the meaning. I think that another thing, too, um, that probably most people know, but sometimes they don't, is this idea of what does it, what is when we talk about apocalyptic literature, what are we talking about in apocalyptic literature? We're talking about two things. We're talking about, one, an interpretation of present events in a poetic and abstract kind of form. We encounter this very strongly in the book of Daniel. And, um, and we find in the visions of Daniel the apocalyptic images of the things that are transpiring um, near, the, near the end of the Old Testament age. We also find that in the New Testament, when we come to the book of the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation, that what happens is, is that it is, again, kind of an abstract, visual, and verbal, poetic format of interpreting the present events in such a way that, that they become less than simply a, 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 a monotone narrative and become instead of very, very dynamic and visual and engrossing kind of reflection. Because the apocalypse really means revelation. And so basically what it is doing, it is showing us in a very dramatic way somehow the depths. If we simply have a narrative of a current event, that's one thing. If we have a narrative that is highly, highly poetic and highly artistic, we have a deeper insight, I think, into the events that are going on around us. And part of the problem with Christianity is that it has been around for so long and while still anticipating the end, has simply become kind of a monotone narrative and a monotone narrative that doesn't convey a great deal of the excitement and the wonder of God's activity and God's presence in the world. And every once in a while, then even the scripture itself breaks out into these poetic bursts of, of, uh, of graphic imagery and uh, begins to interpret. I think probably one of the great ones is the ones that we get on, on, on the Feast of, of the Assumption, I believe, with the, with the woman giving birth to the child and the dragon pursuing it and so forth. Obviously, this is the beginning of the persecutions by Rome, and this is when Rome is trying to destroy the child, to destroy the Christ. Um, the woman is obviously both Mary and the church, and, uh, and the Lord protects both from, from the wiles of the, uh, of, of the dragon. Uh, it's, it's so much more... Um, it's so much different than saying, well, Rome began to persecute the church. Well, it, 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 it affects more of our senses when we expand the means in which we communicate those events. And the woman, of course, giving birth and the dragon pursuing her is one that sticks in our minds and helps us to understand the enormity of what the Christians were experiencing at the time that being members of the woman who is then swept away 
um, is, is somehow or other gives an increased appreciation of the dangers that the church faces, but also of the fidelity of the living God and how he intervenes and saves the church from, from the fangs of, of, of the Roman Empire. And there is a great deal of discussion then also in the modern world, the modern academic world, about the degree of persecution that the church experienced in its early centuries. And uh, there is, of course, those who say, well, gee, it was nowhere near as bad as everybody said it was, and there was no real persecution of the church, and so on and so forth. That's not exactly true. Um, we we certainly have enough primary source material to indicate, yeah, there was a very aggressive and active persecution. Um, the first, of course, was that of Nero when he burned the Christian sections of Rome in order to clear the land, in order to build the Circus Maximus. Um, to say that this is not a vast persecution, if you take a whole section of a city and you decide, well, I want to build some kind of a, a monument there, so my way of clearing the slums is just simply to burn them down with the people in them. Um, that's an active persecution against someone. And it just so happens that the section that Nero burnt in Rome happened to be the Christian section. For the Christians were necessarily, at that time, mostly the least prosperous and the, the ones most, uh, most subject actually, to abuse by, by higher powers. And so there was the great persecution of Nero, and then there were sporadic persecutions throughout. We certainly have the, uh, the letters of, of Ignatius of Antioch as he's on his way to Rome to, be, to go into the Colosseum and be devoured by wild animals. We have, we have the, the terrible persecution by Diocletian later on. And even into the 10th century, we have the persecution of the Christians um, by the Moorish Empire and the death of Eulogius Maria and Flora. Um, so we, we find that there's sufficient evidence to say there was a persecution. And the, the apocalyptic understanding of that persecution certainly comes out in the story of the dragon and the woman. So then Jesus now is beginning to talk to his disciples and he picks up this apocalyptic imagery um, because he wants to make a point. He wants to say, you know, this is just not business as usual. This all fits together in a very strange sort of way. And so he says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on earth, nations in agony, bewildered by the clamor of the oceans and its waves, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things began to take place, stand erect, hold your heads high, because your, because your liberation is near at hand. And so this then is Luke's little section on the apocalyptic nature of the second coming of the Lord. And he tells us, that there will be signs in the sky. And he doesn't mean this, this is all going to happen in a 24-hour period. This is part of the experience of being Christian in the world. There are signs and there are wonders and people are in agony and people are bewildered. And uh, that there are great tsunamis and there are men dying of fear as they wait the menaces of the world. Think of the, think, think of the Jews um, uh, in, in, the, in the Second World War. Did they, did they not live in fear 
of being discovered by the Nazis? Was there not a huge underground trying to help them escape from Europe? And despite the maligning of Pius XII, we know that he created a vast network of escape from Europe for many of the Jews. Um, compared with how many went to the went to the to the to the concentration camps, of course, it's minuscule. But when you start talking in numbers of a hundred thousand or so, it's not minuscule after all. That's a hundred thousand human lives. So that so that yes, so fear is part of life, and the world is a menacing place. It's a menacing place even today. We always we always have on the horizon something that is going to that frightens us, something that's going to destroy us. And, um, and, and whether it's the plagues of the Middle Ages, whether it's the terrible wars of the Middle Ages, whether it's the horrible wars of the modern age. Um, the, for instance, I was just reading the other day that in the Battle of the Somme in the First World War, there were over a million casualties. Unbelievable. Um, and, and certainly the Pope called it uh, uh, the suicide of Western civilization. And we have never recovered from World War I. Um, and to say nothing then of the horrors of the Third Reich and World War II and the, and the Stalinist regime that killed over 30 million Russians in their, in their, in their, in their plan to create a, uh, an, idyllic, an, an idyllic worker's paradise. And this is something, for instance, that the people, our instruments like the New York Times was always very careful to avoid because they were very favorably disposed towards Stalin and very favorably um, disposed toward the coming of communism, for they saw its ultimate goal as a humanitarian goal, which was ultimate equality and freedom. And so they defended it and covered up the horrors and the atrocities of the Stalinist regime, whereas they saw Hitler as, of course, an, an, an autocrat, and they saw Hitler as a, as a power grab for the elite, and so they were very, very, of course, anti-Nazi. And um, when at the same time, if they were even-handed, the, the Russians killed more people than the Nazis killed. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, near the end of his life, Joseph Stalin actually um, started a great purge of the Jews in Russia as well. Um, according to a book by Edward Radzinski, um, it was to outrage the West in such a way that would justify Stalin in pushing the button and starting the, the, last, the final nuclear war. Um, but whatever the reason was, the parallels are tremendously clear. And, and the, the mass media and, uh, and, of course, much of the academic and intellectual world tended to be favorable toward Stalin and negative toward Hitler, and yet men dying of fear as they await the menaces of the world. Thirty million Russians died. You can't say they died probably without fear. So here we have then, in both in the times of Jesus and throughout the history, and even into the more contemporary times, what you simply have are ghastly things going on on the earth, and some of them natural and some of them, of course, caused by humanity. And, um, and it said, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And certainly the powers of heaven were shaken. Certainly the faith of the people was decimated during the 20th century because basically 
the atrocities that were going on in the 20th century was the failure of Christianity, the colossal failure and self-destruction of Christian society. For Germany, England, France, Austria, Hungary, the United States, and, and so forth, were Christian nations, as was Russia, um, and, and certainly Eastern Europe. And it was ourselves... The, the non-Christian element that was introduced into the Second World War was, of course, Japan. But, um, but in a sense, this is part of the great destruction of, uh, of belief and faith in, in the goodness of, of the Church and the goodness of Christianity. After all, these were not Christians and non-Christians. These were Christians who were doing this to each other. And so what in the world was Christianity all about if it led itself into this kind of a self-destructed um, orgy of, of, of death and horror? And it was, of course, a great explanation for the type of theology that came out of Europe after the Second World War especially, um, beginning after the First World War. And... Uh, and, and began then to try and reconstruct some kind of positive and some kind of, of, of hopeful understanding of human nature and of Christian, uh, the Christian interpretation of human nature. It's a struggle that goes on and on, and it feeds all sorts of different kinds of, uh, of approaches to try and understand Christianity as something that could never do this to itself again. But then Luke goes on to another piece, another part of this, of this menacing world in which we live, which we live from the time of the Lord Jesus and uh, up until the present time, as we've just seen. And, and one of the great signs that took place in the in very close to the age of the Lord Jesus was the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And, uh, and that there is a lot of speculation that when it says they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory um, and stand erect, hold your heads high because your liberation is near at hand, there's all sorts of those who say this refers to the destruction of the temple and therefore the liberation of Christianity. It was no longer now to be seen simply once Judaism had been decimated that was no longer able to see Christianity simply as a sect of Judaism, but it is the full-blown presence of Christ and the full-blown presence of his church in the world in which people were then living in. And that event was 70 AD. But then Luke goes on into a certain sort of way. He says, so watch yourselves, or your hearts will be coarsened with debauchery and drunkenness, with the cares of life. And that day will be sprung on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come down on every living man on the face of the earth. Stay awake, praying at all times for the strength to survive all that is going to happen, and stand with confidence before the Son of Man. And so basically, Luke ends this with a moral admonition. Our daily lives are incredibly important, because our daily lives are what prepare us in those daily lives, prepare us for the coming of the Lord for we know not the day or the hour. And so if we live righteously, avoiding debauchery and drunkenness, which has a way of, of uh, dulling the senses and dulling the conscience and dulling the heart and dulling the soul, and, uh, and 
it says the more that we sink into disorderly lives, the more we sink into a life alien to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the more suddenly will the day spring upon us like a trap. For it will come down on every living man on the face of the earth. No one is going to escape the encounter with Jesus Christ, and no one is going to escape kind of the uh, the in- encounter with their own lives as they have been lived before the living God. And uh, here we speak in terms of, of the judgments of both both the immediate judgment, the judgment, we might even say of the destruction of the temple, is, is the individual death of the Christian. And it is there then that we face what we call the particular judgment. It's when we face God and become accountable for all we have done or not done in our preparation for his coming into our lives. At the same time, we also are aware of the fact that there is a final cataclysmic event, and that we refer to as the general judgment when all humanity will stand before the throne of justice and, uh, and, and, will, uh, and will before that throne of justice then be accountable for the way they have lived their lives. There's different emphases on that in different times. We know that in the Middle Ages, in the great uh, hymn, the, the Dies Irae, um, that it was always used for the requiem masses. It's that day of wrath, that dreadful day, shall heaven and earth and ashes lay, as David and the Sibyl say. And the line, and what horror must invade the mind, of the, when the, oh no, and, and what horror must invade the mind when, I don't remember that, but anyways, but and even saints shall comfort me. The idea of the harshness of judgment, well, we, we find more and more in this harshness of judgment. We find, um, of course, more and more that we want to emphasize, and we have emphasized, you know, the mercy of the Lord. Um, it began as a, as a historical movement within the church with Margaret Mary Alacoque's revelations of the, of the sacred heart of Jesus, um, emphasized in the more modern times by the divine mercy, which is basically the same devotion. And, uh, and then we have, of course, a tremendous emphasis on the merciful, forgiving God, which takes away some of that, some of that dread that the Dies Irae and those ideas of judgment in the Middle Ages kind of infused in, into the people of the church. But be that as it may, whether we are, want to emphasize justice or mercy, <coughs> both, both elements are present in, in the final judgment, and Luke wants to emphasize that in this final paragraph of the Gospel. He wants to give us a moral component of preparation for the uh, for the for the coming of the Lord, and he said, "Stay awake, praying at all times for the strength to survive all that is going to happen, and to stand with confidence before the Son of Man." We go back to the great persecutions that we spoke about. We will go back to Saint Ignatius of Antioch and his entrance, his preparation of entrance, you know, into the Colosseum and into the wild animals. But we also go back. Who were the great heroes? Of, uh, of standing erect uh, and facing what was happening in the, in the Second World War. We certainly have Maximilian Kolbe, we certainly have Edith Stein, we certainly have Franz Jägerstetter, and, uh, and we have innumerable others who, who were adamant and, and able to remain faithful to the Lord, the living God, despite the fact of the horror all around them and the fate which they all knew awaited them. 
And so what we have then is, first of all, the apocalyptic um, um, affirmation in the, first, in the first part of this gospel. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth na- and on earth nations in agony, bewildered by the clamor of the ocean, men dying of fear as they await what menaces. The world for the powers of heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's a kind of a condensation of the story of life. It's a condemnation, it's a condensation of, uh, of basically the story of human history. At no time has humanity that I can aware of ever lived without a sense of, of a threat to their existence. Um, no matter how realistic or how unrealistic that threat might be, whether it's from nature, whether it's from humanity. Right now, the big thing is climate change. It's going to kill us all. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, At the same time, to raise it to the level of an apocalyptic fear in order to get people to respond to it is kind of um, not maybe the best way when we all know that we have a responsibility toward God's creation and we all know that we have a responsibility toward caring for that which the Lord has given us to care for. So that what happens, and, and, be, and, you know, and, and before that it was AIDS and then it's COVID and then it's something, if it's not that, then it's something else. In the, and, uh, and politically now it's the massive Chinese army. It's all of those kinds of things. We always feel threatened. Our existence is always threatened. And that's all this is saying. Yeah, and, and, and legitimately so, it says, that uh, the powers of heaven will be shaken. But at the end, at the end of human history, we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so be prepared for that. And then Luke says the way to preparation is, of course, the righteous life. And, uh, and so he begins to develop then some of which is typical of Luke, some of the, the moralism of the preparation for the, com- for the second coming of the Lord. The point being in this, in this gospel is that we are anticipating, but we are not just anticipating the historical appearance of the incarnate Christ in the world through the season of Advent. We are preparing ourselves actually for, for the apocalyptic age, for the end of time, and for the second coming of the Savior. And, uh, and so St. Bernard says that the Lord comes to us in three ways. He comes to us in his birth, he comes to us in our hearts, and he comes to us at the end of time. What Luke is encouraging us to do in this last chapter of the Gospel is to prepare to receive him into our hearts. And the way that we do that, according to Luke, is that we stay awake, praying at all times with the strength to survive all that is going to happen and to stand with confidence before the Son of Man. We need never lose confidence in our hope in Jesus Christ. For if we live for him and with the anticipation of his coming into our lives and that we ourselves then will be the ones who are rescued by the living God and brought therefore into the glory of, uh, of the second coming of the Lord. It's a hard thing to get our minds around and it's a hard thing to grasp, but it's part of the truth of the faith. And without our understanding of an end, we have very little sense as to how to live the present. So let us reflect upon the end of time and let us reflect upon our preparation for it, that we might be a people who have stood erect, ones who have, in fact, 
um, prayed at all times and, uh, and who are standing with confidence before the coming of the living God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. 